Awesome. Oh, the lights came on, so that means we're we're in sermon time now, friends. How's everybody doing today? All right, good. That was much. That was pretty good. I'm not even gonna give us to do the redo. That was just good. We're just gonna move on. Uh, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh. Uh, I should have introduced myself before, but I didn't. So hi, how are you doing? Um, I'm the lead pastor here. It's a great honor. Uh, what we're going to do right now is we're going to continue our time in worship by diving into the scriptures. And so what we mean by that is that we continue in worship by opening these words that we believe God meets us in. As we engage these words, we anticipate or believe that God's spirit will interact with us. And as we engage them, as God's spirit interacts with us, we firmly do believe that God changes our attitudes, our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions, our habits. And all this happens through a work of God's spirit engaging us as we approach these words. And so with that, I want to encourage you, don't let this be the time that you kind of start checking out, but, but rather I want to encourage you to kind of, kind of dive in right now, right? Kind of lean forward in your chair, start thinking to yourself, God, what do you want to do in my life? How do you want to speak to me? Uh, and from here, we'll, we'll engage and, and really expect God to move in our lives through this time in the word. And, and what we're going to do to do that, to accomplish that, is that we're going to be continuing a, a subject of sermons, something we call a sermon series, which is just a, a string of topics focused on Romans 12 and 13, where we're really focusing on the impact of Jesus' death and resurrection on how we follow him. So here's the thing. A lot of us can, can have the idea of, how do I follow Jesus? I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm trying to follow Jesus. But as we do that, we approach it through this set of ideas that's really, what do I do and what do I not do? And really, the, the, the main factor in following Jesus is not what we do or what we don't do, but rather what Jesus has done in his death and in his resurrection. And yet, so often, we kind of forget how important that is. And so what we're doing here is we're really focusing in on Romans 12 and 13, looking at how Jesus' death and resurrection impacts that idea of following him and trying to bring that into our lives. Now, uh, last week, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we talked about uh, really how the, the, how the death and resurrection of Jesus impacts how we love others. Um, this week, what we're doing is we're focusing on how the death and resurrection of Jesus impacts suffering. Now, I know that's everybody's favorite subject. Uh, oh, man, that flower was aggressive. Uh, <laughs> um, so <laughs> suffering's a tricky subject. Let me be very honest. Suffering's a very tricky subject for us because— uh, for the most part, broadly speaking, not a single one of us uh, wants to deal with it. Not a single one of us wants to engage it. We all generally avoid it like the plague. And uh, that's everyone. It's everyone from every culture, every age. Uh, and the thing is, our relationship with this idea in our lives, um, like, like, Let me say this. We avoid it, but yet the Bible is completely filled with examples of how to engage with it. So we do our best to avoid it. And meanwhile, the Bible continuously takes us to the spot where it says, here's how to face this. And if I'm being honest, I kind of feel like this is maybe the biggest area of disconnection we have with the Bible. Because in the world that we live in and the culture that we live in and the lives that we lead, we go, no, I don't want suffering. Leave that alone. And we try to insulate ourselves as much as we can with every convenience, with every comfort, with every good thing. And then we say, okay, if I can just 
keep on putting this stuff in here. It's like insulation in my home, right? If I just keep shoving this stuff that makes me cough and makes me itchy into the walls, eventually the cold outside will never be able to get in. And we kind of think we have the same relationship with suffering and all the good things and comforts we have in our life. So we fill our lives with every comfort. We fill our lives with every convenience. We try to make as much money as we can. We try to help ourselves as much as we can. We, we build this world around us thinking, if I could just insulate myself from the outside suffering enough, then maybe I can avoid it. And yet the reality is no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how tall you are, no matter how skinny you are, no matter how fat you are, no matter what color you are, no matter what culture you come from, suffering will inevitably catch up with you. It is truly one of the great equalizers in the human experience, that suffering will catch you. It does not matter how hard you try. It does not matter how much you insulate. It is going to catch you. And here's the thing. In the scriptures, right, in the, in the New Testament, our relationship with this idea of suffering, rather than being something we, we cast off to the side and avoid, actually becomes the means by which our Christian character is developed, not the means by which it's hurt. And so rather than, than really having this approach where we see suffering as a bad thing, right, the scriptures really invite us to, to engage suffering not as an evil foe, but as a conquered enemy. And in, in seeing it as a conquered enemy, to see it as a means of development, a means of cultivation for our spiritual life, not something to be scared of, something to be feared. And, and, and this is kind of how Paul approaches this idea of suffering. And, and this is what he invites us into, that in the midst of suffering, we are invited to put into practice the Christian faith uh, that we, we hold to, that we, we live in. And through those practices, through the Spirit of God engaging us, he actually develops those Christian practices. He develops our faith. And before you know it, the training process of suffering has produced growth and produced fruit that nothing else can possibly do. Not a single thing can possibly do. Now, what does this look like? What we're going to do is we're going to read Romans 12, 12. And we're going to kind of just take a step into what Paul is doing in this one verse. Uh, and we're going to just kind of break it down a little bit. Now, if you would with me, usually we have a sermon. I mean, a, a sermon. Yeah, we do too, have that too. But usually we have a scripture reader here, and they kind of read the scripture before I come up. But what we want to do through this sermon series is we, I want to invite you to read this with me. Uh, I, I, through the tradition of the church, there's been huge periods, even predating the church, in, in kind of the, the, the church's forefather of Judaism, right? Like reading the scriptures together has been a powerful uh, practice. And so I want to do that together with you. I want to read Romans 12, 12, this version that's here on the screen. I want to read it together. Uh, and then at the, uh, I'm not going to do the, this is the word of the Lord, because some of y'all don't know that. I barely know that. I ain't going to lie. I'm Mexican, and I'll get it. I can grow up like that. So as, uh, I was going to make a joke about Easter, but y'all that were here for that, y'all know what it is. Um, so real quick, let's read it together. If you would, I'm going to start reading. Read along with me, and then we'll just say amen at the end of it. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Amen. Now. Today's verse, what it's a part of is a bigger string of instructions in Romans 12 that go from about verse 9 and end in verse 21. The reason we're stopping here is because this seems to be a set of instructions, like a movement of instruction that's not irregular for Paul, meaning it's something he's talked about before. In fact, he's talked about it before in Romans. 
In Romans 8, 24 through 27, there's this stretch where Paul actually builds out this exact idea, right? Have hope, and from hope we move on to a, a persistence or an endurance or patience, and then from there he moves on into prayer. And, and these three ideas, hope, patience, and prayer, for Paul here, form a type of bedrock for suffering. What do I mean by that? They form a bedrock for suffering because each one of them interacts with suffering in a unique way, right? If you didn't have a circumstance you long to see change, there'd be no reason for hope. You would have nothing to hope for because everything that you hope for would be in front of you, right? If you, if you didn't have anything you were having to endure or to suffer through, you wouldn't have any need for patience. There'd be no need for that because everything would be fine. If you didn't have, if you didn't experience that feeling of helplessness, that feeling of, of feeling like there's nothing that you can do. Prayer doesn't make any type of sense. And yet for Paul, when we enter into suffering, each one of these confronts us and invites us in to engage with them, to grow in them. And Paul starts at a very simple but foundational place, right? The first of these three ideas is this idea of hope. And, and here's what's really important. I want to I read exactly what I, what I wrote because I think this is, is almost the crux of the matter here. The idea here is not rejoice because we have hope. Okay, that's not the idea. The idea is not rejoice because we have hope, but rather the idea is let the truth of your hope create rejoicing. Okay, don't, it's not uh, rejoice because you have hope, but let the truth of your hope create rejoicing. This is really important because during suffering, everyone looks for hope. We're all looking for hope, especially in suffering, but even outside of suffering, every single one of us. You and everyone around you is looking for hope. We're all in our mind writing stories where we're the good guy and we've done the good thing. We're all trying to find silver linings for, oh, I think that'll get better. I think that'll make sense. And, and I think this is actually for the best because this happened and it's actually going to get better from here. We're all trying to buy that lotto ticket. I don't know about y'all. I'll be out here every once in a while buying a lotto. No, I'm just like, but, but like, right, there, there is this idea where people are trying to find hope. Maybe it's in a lotto ticket. Maybe Maybe it's in like, like some kind of silver lining. Maybe it's in just telling yourself, I did the right thing. And yet none of those things makes any sense by themselves. Paul would look at that and be like, hey, that hope is empty. At least on its own, it's empty. Right? Because let's say, as an example, you, you win the lotto and you're a multimillionaire. You have more money than maybe everyone in here combined. You don't take that with you. It, ne it doesn't, again... You can insulate yourself with as much money as you want, and death will still come. It doesn't insulate you from that. Maybe, maybe the silver linings are there, but the silver linings don't make sense unless there's a redeemer outside of that situation that can actually use the broken parts of our life in order to create something beautiful. So without this redeeming character that has control of what's not in your control, there are no real silver linings. Paul would look at all these and say, man, what, what, what hope has, has substance? What hope can bring not just a moment of relief, but a lifetime of rejoicing? That's going to be his question to us. Does your hope produce a moment of relief or a lifetime of rejoicing? Because in Paul's day, everyone was looking for hope because everyone was looking for relief. There was suffering everywhere. Everyone was hurting. Everyone was in pain. It was a difficult, difficult place for him, and, and everyone was trying to find that moment of relief. Yet for Paul, only the Christian faith invited us into this unique vision of our lives and the world. Only the Christian faith spoke of the most glorious and beautiful character in the whole universe coming down and loving the most lowly and outsider in 
the community. Only the Christian faith talked about the guiltless individual stepping into the place of the guilty in order to sacrifice himself for him out of love. Only the Christian faith spoke of the lowest in society, the most broken and marginalized in society, being flipped and becoming the first in this new kingdom. Only the Christian faith even spoke of a new world or a new creation that was going to be different and was going to be right. And only the Christian faith spoke that that new world, right, the very thing that our hearts need is going to be found in the person of Jesus. This man who was amongst you, who was not inaccessible, but was, was with you, was here, was, was, could be touched, could be heard, could be seen. Wasn't the story that someone, somewhere, somehow was going to do something, but that God himself entered into the story with us in order to bring about this new vision of what the world was going to be. I lost my place. However, right, nothing in there says that our circumstances are going to change, at least not right away. Nothing in there says that suffering will never come. Nothing in there uh, says that we're going to be rich and never going to be poor. You're rich in faith, but I guarantee some of y'all, some of y'all know what it's like to be poor. But everything in that message says that we'll have him. Everything in that message says that, that the hope and the care and the affection he brings will meet the deepest parts of our heart. Everything says, right, that what he's accomplished for us will be satisfactory for us, that it will be sufficient. And that's really the idea, that what he's accomplished for us, not what we've accomplished on our own, but what he's accomplished for us is what we're going to put our faith in. That's what Paul has in front of us here. Don't, don't look at life and, and try to inject any moment of hope and say that's what causes rejoicing, but rather find that which is sustainable, which is cement, which is concrete, what Jesus has accomplished for us. That doesn't change. That stays the same. That promotes rejoicing, right? Not, not, a, not what a Democrat accomplishes, not what a Republican accomplishes, not what a, a philosophy accomplishes, not what a certain system of organizing accomplishes, not what, what my mother and my father accomplished, not what my kids are going to accomplish, none of that, right? Every single thing that we go out there and say, I want to input this sense of hope so that I can rejoice from it, so that I can have a life from it, so that it can give me something in me that makes me feel like I have what life has been telling me I need. All those things tell us this is what your hope is. And it may provide a moment of relief. But then the moment the child doesn't, doesn't, doesn't kind of, you know, quote unquote, screws up, the moment we have a, a rift in our relationship with our parents, the moment the political party flakes out, all those moments go like that. And we're back looking for a moment of relief, not living out a lifetime of rejoicing. And now here Paul says, hey, look at what Jesus has accomplished for you. Look at the sin-riddled guilt that, that you walked with. Look at the brokenness of the world around you. Look at the deceit in the heart of those that corrupt the world. And then look at this Lamb of God. Look at this peaceful and righteous and beautiful man. Look at him entering into the world. Loving and caring and giving himself so that those who are broken, those who are hurting, those who are deceitful, those who are sinful, those who are helpless, those who are guilty, I could be found and made new in him. That's what he's accomplished. That's the hope that Paul is pointing us to. And that's the hope he's saying, hey, cling to that. Let that produce rejoicing in you. Um, 
There was a young man, some of y'all have heard this story before, but there was a young man that I used to know um, in college, and he went to something called Passion Conference. Anybody remember that? All right, like eight of you. Um, Passion Conference was a conference where a bunch of, I don't know what they used to say, 18 to 22-year-olds or something like that would come together and sing about Jesus a lot. Um, and it would be kind of in one, one or two specific cities, and, and, and kids from all across the country would come to these cities, and, and they would oftentimes stay in hotels nearby the big stadium that it was taking place at, and then all these thousands of kids would go to that stadium, and they would all start singing. And I had this one friend that attended one of these conferences, and he was walking uh, from his uh, hotel room to the stadium. He, he saw some guys out with tickets, with like these little, these little signs, and the signs read, why do you still watch pornography? That's what the sign said. And he stopped because he felt what? Felt guilty. The moment he, he saw that, he thought, why do I still watch this? I'm fixing to go in here and sing with tens of thousands of people about Jesus, a Jesus that I say changes my life. And yet I know and apparently this guy knows that I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch this. And so he walked up to the man and he said, what is your sign about? And, and this gentleman looked at him and said, do you really think that what you're doing here changes your life? And if so, why do you still watch this? He proceeded to say, you see, if someone had taught you the real gospel, then you would no longer watch this because the real gospel has the power to change you and what you do. And so if that's the, the real gospel and you're still doing this, then that must mean you don't feel, you, you've never experienced the real gospel. So what you should do, go back to your house, leave right now, pack up your clothes, throw away your cell phone, and join us in a town called Wells, Texas, where we'll teach you the real way. Here's the thing. A lot of us in here are laughing, and I'm not coming at you for laughing, but it's easy to giggle at. And be like, okay. But for a young man that's earnestly trying to follow God, and wants to see his life be molded into the likeness of Jesus, and someone presents him with this mutated idea of truth that takes the attention away from what Jesus has accomplished and places it solely on what have you accomplished. Have you stopped doing this? Have you stopped doing that? Have you started doing this? Have you started doing that? And if you haven't, that must mean that it's not right because this idea of what your hope is found in is not in what he has accomplished, but it's in what you have accomplished. And if it's in what you have accomplished, you must be failing. And we can help you. How enticing is that? Why? Because everyone's looking for hope. And they happen to tell him, here's how I can give you hope. But the focus for that hope was not going to be on what Jesus accomplished, but on what he accomplished. That man showed up to my house at like 1.30 a.m., like the next day or something like that. We had to walk him through the whole, me and a buddy of mine named Alberto had to walk him through the whole gospel. He had to go through what amounts to almost years of disengaging this thought and arriving back at the gospel of what Jesus has done for him. But that's, that's the temptation of hope. We're looking for it somewhere. We, we want to find it. And yet for Paul, he's saying, this is where I want you to go. 
I want you to find your hope, not in what you've done, not in your success, not in your failure, not in your high moments, not in your low moments. I want you to look at this man on the cross. I want you to look at this man glorified and exalted, overcoming the grave. And I want you to say, that's where I find my hope. That man on that cross, that grave empty, that's where I find my hope. And every moment and every temptation and every second of anything and anyone and any voice that comes and says, but look at you, but look at them, but look at that, but look at there. I go, no, 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 no. I have the hope I need. I have the hope I want. I have the hope that doesn't provide me a moment of relief, but gives way to a lifetime of rejoicing, right? That's the hope that Paul's talking about here. Then in the midst of suffering, when everything tempts us to, to try and fill hope and provide relief, we cling to a hope, right, that produces rejoicing even in the midst of suffering. The hope of what Christ has accomplished for us. Now, when we have this type of foundation, this foundation of hope, this is when we're able to have patience, this next idea, right? If we go back to just like this verse, right, we, we have this idea of rejoice in hope, uh, have patience in, uh, I forget what the CSB says, tribulation, uh, affliction. Can you put it up there, Ian? <laughs> Sorry, y'all. The back was funny because Ian looked at Luis and Luis looked at him and was like, <laughs> um, now, here's the word. The word in the original text probably most literally means stand your ground. This idea of, have, of having patience most literally means stand your ground. It brings to mind this idea of almost like a military, right? Other translations uh, put this word as endurance. That might be a little bit closer to what it most literally means, uh, but it's meant to bring about this vision of a continued fight in the midst of suffering. And this is tricky because what it's not saying is, Continue to fight until you get out of suffering. It's not saying fight to get out. As though we're saying, okay, suffering is not meant to be here. I'm not meant to experience this, so I'm going to keep fighting until I get out of suffering because suffering by its very nature is not what we want. It's not meant to be. It's not something that we should experience. Again, that's the avoiding it thing we talked about earlier. So that's not what it's saying. Rather, it's saying in the midst of suffering, right, hold strong. In the midst of suffering, fight and endure in the faith. This idea that we have the hope of what Christ has done, and it's through that hope and with that hope that we stand strong in the midst of suffering. That's the idea. In other words, this is in the most basic English I can think of. Suffering sucks. Suffering sucks. In the midst of it, our heart gets tired. Our mind starts to wander. We're tempted to become bitter at God and other people. We're tempted in discouragement. We're tempted to be angry and hurtful to other people because we're hurt and we're angry. So we lash out at them. We hurt people in the midst of, of us hurting. What Paul is saying is that through that, endure, stand your ground using the weapons of faith as the means by which you endure, the weapons of hope by the means, as the means by which you endure and you stand your ground, right? And here's the thing, that, that doesn't mean that it's going to be pretty. It means that it's going to be messy. It means that suffering is going to be messy, and it's not meant to be clean, because it means that the, the hope of what Jesus has accomplished tells us by its very nature, you will fail. But in your failure, I've made a way, and in your failure, I've given hope. 
and in your failure, I love you. And that means that it's going to get messy. It's going to get messy. That means every time that we are, are, are embattled against bitterness, we have to look at the, the Redeemer sitting there mercifully looking at people spitting on him and beating him and be moved to mercy. It means that every time we, we feel like we've hurt someone because we're angry, because you're likely not going to avoid that, we look at the one who, on the cross who's forgiving people that are, that are hurting him, and, and we use that as a means to move our heart toward forgiveness. It means that in the midst of suffering, right, the, the way is not perfect, but the way is, is, is riddled with moments of mercy and grace because of what Jesus has accomplished. And along the way, we're meant to go down, and every time we hit the ground and it feels like suffering has brought us to our knees, we're meant to look down and find one of those pieces of grace and mercy and pick it up and go, this is for me and get back up and keep enduring and allowing those moments to shape us, moments of his mercy, moments of his grace. The honestly, the only thing that I could really think of when it comes to this is uh, my stepdad's passing. Some of y'all, um, we all know about this and I've shared this before, some of you don't. Uh, I wanna say it was 2014, uh, maybe 2015 or maybe 2013. My stepdad passed away. He'd been married to my mom for 12 or 13 years. And it was really hard. He, uh, he died of cancer, and it was a pretty long and strenuous battle. It wasn't nice. There was those kind of gut-wrenching moments where everyone was like, you know, I think it's going to be okay. And then there was even more gut-wrenching moments when it felt like, no, I don't think it's going to be okay. And then the other thing, then it would go back and be like, you know, actually, it might be okay. And ultimately, it ended uh, with him passing away. And my mother, uh, she took this really hard. Took this really hard. Uh, to be quite honest, my mom had had various difficult life circumstances throughout her life. And it, my stepdad was one of the most patient, merciful people that I've ever met in my entire life. He was a Catholic. And by that, I mean a Catholic. That man went to church like on Easter. And on Christmas, he was like, this is time for my family, right? Like, he was very quote unquote Catholic. But he embodied a sense of God's patience and care and mercy that stuck with me and that impacted my mom. And when he died, it felt like something that my mom had longed for and had found in him after a life of trauma and pain had been found. And now cancer had ripped it away. So my mom suffered. She was deeply sad. She had moments where she made wild mistakes. Had moments where she had some real relational breakdown with me and the other people that she loved. But in the midst of it, in the midst of it, right, she continued to grow in mercy and love. Every time she encountered one of those moments, she would return back and experience God's mercy and forgiveness and care. And through each one of those moments, a little trickle, a little drop of, of hope would enter into my mom. And each one of those little drops started culminating over the course of time. The culminating course of time to where eventually she started to take one healthy step after another. At the beginning, it was more like one healthy step and then another 18 bad choices. But it was like one good step and then a few bad and then another good one. And then a, a few less bad ones and then another good one. And then a few less. And, and it wasn't that she was going, oh, man, I, I'm so good now. It was that along the way she picked up moments of grace and mercy. 
where God mercifully stopped something from happening, where she made huge mistakes and came to the people that she hurt, and the people that she hurt said, I love you, we forgive him. And each one of those moments of mercy, each one of those moments of grace in the midst of suffering started to do something to her, started to, to encourage her, to build her up. This is going to sound a little bit off the wall, but, but it really does remind me of my current interest in bonsai trees. You know, y'all know I've been really into this recently. Uh, I started planting some trees and some, some stuff in the backyard, and all of a sudden I was like, you know what? I'm kind of low-key obsessed with, like, how little stuff just grows over time. It's amazing. And the thing is, when I say bonsai tree, oh, my bad, brother. Thank you. The video, the, vi the video ain't on today, so I deeply appreciate Mike, all right? Uh, hey, hey, you know what's funny is that the video really isn't working today, and that's going to be one of them things that ain't, no one, ain't nobody outside of y'all ever going to know about, all right? So praise the Lamb. Uh, when we think about bonsai trees, all right, this is probably a little bit of what you maybe get. This may be the vision you get of something like this, right? This is probably like a prize-winning ready for show. People would sell one of these for something like 10 or 15 grand. They'd put it into like a, a, a show format, and it would maybe win some awards in certain categories. This is what we imagine when we think about a bonsai tree, at least what I do. But here's the thing. Oftentimes, something like this starts out like this. That's what it starts out like. You see, it, it, it grows big, and then someone says, you know what, I think that would make a really good bonsai tree and they chop everything off except for this little bitty part. And that little bitty part looks really, really scraggly. It looks really messy. There's no appeal to it. It literally, as you can see, looks like a stump with like three twigs coming out of it. And that's what, that's what we're presented with when we have the beginning states of, of what will become that other thing. It's just an ugly stump that gets messy. That's all no one would look at. It's kind of, it takes a lot of work too. I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to try to emphasize, y'all aren't interested in this either. So uh, it takes a lot of work, but this is what it starts like. And then over the course of time, that little green branch, no, 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 the other one. This little green branch will start to thicken up. It'll start to get thicker as it grows out this way, and this one will start to thicken up. And then another one will sprout out here, and that one will start growing out this way, and it'll thicken up. And over the course of years and over the course of labor, and then they're starting to put wires on it and all kinds of stuff, that turns into the other thing. But it starts as that. It starts as that. Here's the thing. I think for a lot of us, we think suffering is that presentation moment. Where we say, okay, I'm suffering. What I need to do to suffer well is I want to go and I want to present how good I can navigate through suffering. We think we're meant to have it together. We think we're meant to do well. We think we're meant to have this type of moment where as we navigate through suffering, the people around us are like, man, I should have given this guy an award for suffering. Like, he suffers so good. Like, it's crazy. His little leaves were so perfect on his suffering. Right? That, that's how we envision what suffering should look like in our lives. When in reality, suffering is not the show. Suffering is the training. Suffering isn't the presentation moment. Suffering is when it looks like everything we thought we had in our lives gets chopped down. And now it's just a stump. And now it looks ugly, and no one would value it. No one would think it's beautiful. No one would think it's precious, except the one who owns it. Except the one who it belongs to. And meanwhile, that person is going, that branch is going to be beautiful. I'm going to water it. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to cultivate it. This is going to grow over time. 
this is going to grow over time. And we're going to make something beautiful here. Because in the hands of the Savior, the hands of the Redeemer, he takes these beautiful, ugly, horrendous things. Suffering. He works them. Doesn't feel good. Feels like getting the whole top of your, the whole top of your tree chopped off. But it's not the presentation that suffering is. It's the training. It's, it's how we grow. It's, it's where we're invited to, not to show everything that we've done, not to, not to cling to how well we can perform Christianity, but in order to, to dive us deeper, to push us deeper into clinging to the one who has accomplished what we're longing for, who does give us what we, what we need, to cling to the one who, who does say, through me, I'll make all things new. In, in your life, you will have troubles, but, but take heart, I've overcome the world, right? Like, like this idea is what suffering pushes us deeper into. I think this is why Paul is saying, hey, rejoice in hope. This hope thing is foundational to us. And from there, use that, that hope to kind of to stand your ground in the midst of hard times, in the midst of difficult seasons. Because that suffering period is where the master is, is doing his work. I, don't ask me about how, if he allows it or X, Y, and Z. I don't know. But I know that he does work in those times. I know he does work in those times. And from what I can tell in the Bible, anytime the moment of suffering comes up, the instruction, the questions that come from humans is very much like, where are you? The instruction that comes from the wise is uh, submit and trust. That seems to be the invitation. It's, it's hard to see. It's hard to see that stump turning into that thing that's going to be worth like 15 grand. Probably more than that, to be honest. It's hard to see from how that gets from A to B to Z. That's not our job, though. Our job is to cling to the master. That's our job. And that's exactly why Paul ends at prayer, why Paul ends at when things are challenging, right, when, when these moments test you, we're invited to bring them to God. And here's the thing, I, prayer is just, prayer is amazing. Y'all have heard me say I suck at prayer. I really do. Like, I got to force myself to get through like three minutes of praying. That's like 180 seconds of talking to God. I saw, talk about enduring. <laughs> talk about patience. I'm in there like, yo, you can do it, bro. You can do it. You can do it. God help me do it. Prayer's hard for me. Maybe prayer is hard for you. Some of y'all are prayer warriors. Man, I got mad respect for you. But this type of prayer that Paul invites us to, or, or even just this idea of praying that Paul invites us to, is this powerful declaration of exactly how present God is with us. The fact that you would have a living majestic, powerful, loving, merciful, caring, compassionate, involved God at your disposal so that in the, midst, in the midst of your most difficult moments, you could take all of what's building up in your pain and in your suffering and bring it to him and say, here it is. It's such a powerful declaration of God's character and his love for you because it is truly the, the message that you're not alone in the midst of anything you're going through. I want you to hear what I'm saying. Because maybe all of you are doing great right now. And listen to me. Praise God. Praise God if you're doing great at this moment. But for anyone that's in the midst of suffering, the very news that you're not alone 
is incredible news. And prayer is one of the most beautiful declarations that no matter what you go through, no matter what you do, no matter how bad things get, God is with you. He's present. You come to him, you say, God, he's there. His ears hear. There's this moment when we get on our knees, we bow our head, we sit down, we're in the dark, we're in the light, we're on the mountain, wherever we are, where we simply say, God. And the promise of the good news of Jesus, the hope of what he's accomplished for us, enters in and God is present with us just like that in that moment. So that every one of those struggles, every one of those moments where it feels like we're laboring through, and hope is really hard to cling to, and rejoicing seems kind of far, and it does feel like I'm on the road of suffering, and I'm getting knocked down, and I'm having to scramble to find those little nuggets of mercy and those nuggets of grace, right? Prayer puts us right back at the throne room of God saying, I'm with you. Right back there. Right back there. Here's the thing. I don't really have like a good capping story for today. I don't. I don't have a, I don't have a capping story. I usually try to find a story where everything's going to make sense at the end. I don't really have one. I'll be very honest. I don't have one. I think a part of that is because suffering is weird. Suffering's strange. You will enter into it. You will make mistakes. And there's idealized visions of what suffering should be. You're probably not going to do most of those. I'm probably not going to do most of those. It's probably more so going to be a messy, hurtful, painful experience that leaves you wiser, healthier, and clinging on to dear life to Jesus. And if that's the end point, friend, praise God. That's the end point. Praise God. There's nothing that suffering can take from you. It's more valuable than the one to whom suffering forces us to cling to. Nothing. Nothing. So I don't have a capping story. Because some of us are probably going to live out these stories through the course of our life. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fall short. You're going to get knocked down. Because that's suffering. That's what life does. But praise God that we have a hope in what Jesus has accomplished. And it's through and in that hope that we are invited to endure and to stand our ground. In every moment you feel alone, every moment you feel desperate, there is a living, active, loving God your disposal every moment and every second of those seasons. That's the vision something like just this one verse gives us for what suffering looks like. It is an invitation to a deeply human but such a I'm going to use some churchy language here gospel rich right seasons of our life where clinging to the master becomes the soul the absolute sole goal of our life. Kind of should be <laughs> at the end of the day anyway. So I do have four application points I want to invite you to, to kind of try to put into practice to try and invite us into this a little bit more. Again, to try and get us away from this unhealthy 
relationship we have with suffering where we're trying to avoid it, trying to get away from it. And again, one that's healthy. There are seasons of your life where suffering is, is, is somewhat present, right? And, and if we just don't deal with it and then it kind of adds up, man, that's unhealthy. So I want to try to give us some application points and suggestions that kind of bring us back to this idea of engaging with this healthy. The first one is stop hiding from difficult seasons. I mean, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. If you avoid this your entire life, nothing healthy, nothing good is going to come from that. If you got some repressed memories, I want to lovingly tell you, go to a counselor. Go to a counselor, right? That's healthy. That's good. Nothing that, and then let me tell you something on top of that. Nothing that them repressed memories have in store is greater than the mercy that God will provide you. Nothing those repressed memories have in store is greater than the mercy God's going to provide you. And so stop hiding from difficult seasons. Think about where they, where they are in the timeline of your life. Think about where they are right now and engage them. It's not every single one of them is going to be like, oh, I'm working through everything. Y'all know those people I'm talking about. Like, it's like I stub my toe and I feel like I'm hurting inside. And it's like, no, you're not. Your toe's hurting. Like, not every one of them is going to require deep counseling and everything like that. But you know what? There are seasons that do deeply need this. And you need to stop hiding from those certain parts of your life, those certain parts of your story. The second one um, is get messy. Throw all that stuff out there. Put it out there. Put it out there. Find the people that you love and the people that you trust and get messy. Again, there is nothing that your messiness uh, will present that God's grace this time will not cover. God's grace will cover that messiness. Get messy. To the extent to which you get messy is the extent to which you're going to see your faith built. The extent to which you get messy is the extent to which you're going to find healing. The extent to which you get messy is the extent to which God will be glorified and you'll all for your good and all the theological stuff, right? Like, get messy. Get messy. The next one, third one, there's four this time, a lot of application points, uh, is learn Jesus through every single means during seasons of suffering. Every single one. If you think your life and learning Jesus is limited to the Bible, friend, that season's going to be rough for you because you're going to keep running back to the Bible and going, teach me this. I have to go to the Bible. And when God may be wanting you to see something through the means of someone's compassion for you, someone's mercy for you. Y'all, y'all hear me? It's, I'm sure y'all are confused by now because you probably see me being like a super nerd and obsessed with the Bible. And then you constantly hear me up here being like, hey, don't just go to the Bible. It's probably confusing as I'll get out. But I'm telling you, man, the Bible points outside of itself all the time. The Bible's pointing to the sky. It's pointing to the forest. It's pointing to ants. It's pointing to all kinds of stuff. Because the story of God's mercy, compassion, and character is not found in the words of the Bible alone. It's found in every single moment of our lives because he's present in every single moment of our lives. And so learn Jesus through every single means you have available to you. If that's community, if it's a moment at work, if you need to go climb Mount Bonnell, because that's the best thing we got to a mountain in Central Texas, go do that. If you need to go to a lake, if you need to get away and go to a beach, that's your thing. It's not my thing, but you do that. Because learning Jesus through every means is the goal during that season. And if that means that you don't open the Bible for a few days, I want you to listen to me. That's okay. That's okay. I think Jesus is far less concerned with you being in your Bible, far less concerned with you doing all the things you think you're supposed to do as much as he is concerned with you longing for him and seeking him. And, and the last thing is this, that bear your heart to God along the way. Man, along the way, there's going to be seasons where it feels all bottled up. You're angry, you're bitter, you're frustrated. Along the way, bear your heart to God. This is not a 
prep talk of prayer at the beginning and, uh, and a halftime talk. And then at the end of the game, it's like, hey, go back to prayer because prayer is going to get you rooted up again. And it's going to do all the, all the work of putting you back together. No, this is a group project. You, God, and the people God has around you, bear your heart to God along the way. If you were just deciding, hey, I'm going to just, I'm going to endure through this for so long and then I'm going to come to God in a little bit late. Like, no, that is not how this works. Bear your heart to God along the way. That means there will probably be seasons where all day long you're like, God, please help me. And man, friend, do that. That is not weakness. That is not weakness. That is humble dependence. And that's kind of what the Christian faith is all about. And then there will be times where you're like, you know, I should, I should pray today. I feel like I'm, I'm doing well, but I'm going to go to God. It's like, hey, God, thank you, X, Y, and Z. All those seasons are okay. Right, they're okay. But bear your heart to God along the way. Uh, it's my prayer that we would have a, a, a more or a healthier relationship with suffering as we consider what the death and resurrection of Jesus means to this idea of suffering. What it means, this idea of having hope. What it means, this idea of enduring. And ultimately what it means to, to come to God for him to be present with us in the midst of it. And so let's pray, uh, move on to communion, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll head out shortly. Father, thank you so much. For your word, thank you, God, that you are um, present and with us. Thank you, God, that in the midst of suffering, you are uh, merciful, you're compassionate, you're present, you're loving. Um, we ask that you would meet us where we are today, that as your, a vision of your mercy and your grace and your compassion is built uh, in us, that we would uh, take the walls of our independence and the walls of our uh, self-reliance, that they would come down and that we would enter into a time where we understand that suffering is not something to be feared. It's not something that can overcome us, but rather it's a means uh, of growth in the hands of a gracious and loving Savior. Thank you for who you are and what you've accomplished on the cross. We love you. We thank you. We place our life, our, our minds, our hearts in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.